Tonight we're going to be in Daniel chapter 3 and we're just going to learn the Bible. You know, Wednesday nights we like uh, just going through books of the Bible because we don't want to be illiterate with the Bible, do we? We want to know our Bible. You can know many, many books, but know the Bible better than you know any of them because there's your wisdom. It's in the Bible. Seriously. So let's pray together, and then we're going to get into Daniel chapter 3, one of my favorite chapters. And, Lord, we just thank you right now for the wisdom you have given to us in the book of Daniel. And, Lord, as we approach this chapter and we're going to learn how to stand strong in God, I pray you'll be with us, you will speak to us. Lord, that the great teacher of the church, the Holy Spirit of God, will open our ears and open our eyes. And, Lord, I pray our faith is built not only for the good times but for the tough times as, as Daniel and his three friends experience in this chapter. Lord, I pray that you will build our faith, build our hope, strengthen our vision, and help us to be a church that ministers Jesus no matter what the circumstances. Now, would you just look up and just say, Lord, speak to my heart tonight. I receive the Word of God in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, I believe God heard that prayer. It's hard to believe in just a few weeks, school will be back in session. Man, this summer is just flying by. Well, here we go. Let me, and I'm using the clicker. We have a clicker. They finally got me a clicker that works. I mean, it works like a dream. I could be standing over at that hotel and push it, and it would click it. It would change it. So we, we, we like that. Now, we're in Chapter 3 tonight. Now, you do remember that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have been taken captive along with all of Judah in the land of Babylon. So they are captives. Daniel is writing from a place of captivity, just like Paul often wrote from prison. Daniel's writing from a place of captivity, and the captivity is in Babylon. And uh, so there they are, and they're under a pagan king, and uh, they're amongst a pagan people, a people that mocked them, ridiculed them, made fun of their faith, uh, said, sing us a song of Zion when they didn't have any song left. And um, so they're in a very, very tough time. Now, last time we looked at Nebuchadnezzar's first dream, which was given him by God. Let me ask you a question. Can God give a dream to somebody who doesn't know him at all? Come on, raise your hands if you know that's true. God can give anybody a dream. He gives this pagan king an amazingly prophetic dream. And nobody could interpret it but Daniel. All of his magicians and sorcerers and soothsayers and all these witchcraft people that were in his kingdom, none of them had a clue. But Daniel interpreted the dream and not only by doing so saved his own life and the life of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but also the lives of all of these so-called wise men who were really occultists because before they were massacred, Daniel interpreted the dream. So he interpreted it, and it was of a huge, mysterious image, shaped like a man divided into four parts. A head of gold, its chest and arms were of silver, its thighs were of bronze or brass, and legs of iron with feet of part iron and part clay. Now, just as a little uh, recap, Here's what it was. D Daniel interpreted the dream to be of four empires, starting with the head of gold, which was the Babylon that he was living in 
under Nebuchadnezzar. He said, O king Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. Okay, then it went on. The chest and the arms of silver represented the Medo-Persian Empire. And the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, we looked at last time, Daniel lived to see it replace Babylon. How did Daniel know? How could he have possibly known that it would be the Medes and the Persians replacing the Babylonians? How could he have known that? We're talking about a total national kingdom shift. And he said, this is what's going to happen. The Medes and the Persians are going to take over Babylon. And he lived to see it happen. But then it went further. The thighs of bronze represented Greece, which replaced the Medes and the Persians under Alexander the Great. How many of you have ever heard of Alexander the Great? Come on. We've all heard of him, right? Do you know that he lived to be about 32 and died of alcoholism? Do you know that? And yet I want you to notice that God knew who was going to arise on the national scene before he was ever born. And he knew the kingdom he would lead. And though he died at about 32, he was able to conquer most of the, the world in that part of the world. He, he, he was an amazing military genius. Yet at 32, he died, liver disease and all kinds of things from alcoholism. How the mighty have fallen. So God saw that coming. He saw Greece coming, and the, the Greeks overcame the Medes and the Persians. But then there was another one. Finally, the legs of iron represented Rome, which conquered Greece and ruled the world. Rome was represented by the iron. And then he said, but I saw this image's feet of part iron and part clay. Now there is where he went way into the future, into our day. Because that represents the revived Roman Empire of the last days. Symbolized partly by iron, it will be a revival of the old Roman Empire, but it will be mixed with other cultures represented by the clay. And I've shared with you when we're going through the Revelation, I, it, I think it's very possible the European Union is the revived Roman Empire. And what do you see when you look at the European Union? You see a revived Rome, but also mixed in with many other cultures. And that would be the feet of iron and clay. So here's this amazing dream given to a totally pagan, godless king that began in his day and reached 2,600 years all the way to the return of Christ, if you'll remember, represented by the rock that was cut out of the side of a mountain that King Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about. He saw, I saw a rock cut out of the side of a mountain, yet not by human hands. Human hands didn't cut that rock out of the side of the mountain. Well, that leaves only one other set of hands that could do it, God. Now, you remember that Jesus is what? He's the chief cornerstone. He's likened unto a rock. The rock that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about and Daniel interpreted and predicted was Jesus Christ raised up by God, not by human hands, and that his kingdom would crush all other kingdoms of the last day's world and that his kingdom would rule King of kings, Lord of lords, over all forever. So you got this dream that started with Babylon went through the Medes and the Persians, went through the Greeks, went through the Romans, and then reached 2,600 years plus down into future, into the future, down into our day, 
all the way to the return of Christ. Now, that's what I call a dream, a prophetic dream. So what I want us to see, church, as we go through Daniel here, is that God is the God of the nations. He puts down one and raises up another. He knew America was coming before it came. He knew that there would be a China. He knew there would be a Russia. He knew that there would be a Singapore and a North Korea and a South Korea and an Israel. He knew all these things. And he was able through Daniel and through this dream to predict four kingdoms that would come, one right after the other, and reach all the way down into our day. And so do we not serve an amazing God? I said, do we not serve an amazing God? All right? He's a God of the future. So if he knows all of this, he knows all about you and me. Amen? Now, chapter 3 provides another biographical sketch of how the four young Hebrew men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to bow to the pressure of pagan Babylon to assimilate into its ways of thinking and living and their refusal to bow to its idols. Now, I've told you since the first week, I believe that this is the lesson. These first six chapters are all about how these, the, these four young men stood against a pagan culture and refused to assimilate and refused to be indoctrinated and refused to compromise their beliefs and their values. And even though they were in the tiny minority and because they stood with God and didn't try to be popular but stayed with God instead of being accepted, they stood with God. God promoted them and used them in miraculous ways, so much so that we're studying about them tonight. Okay? And I think that's the challenge of our day. I think right now the church is challenged in the same way they were, to bow to the culture and to its ways of thinking and doing. And if you don't, you get into trouble. So let's just look at that tonight. Um, they refused to bow to the idols. They refused to bow to the values of Babylon. Now, Nebuchadnezzar the king decides in chapter 3 that he is so amazing, so wonderful, so incredible, so unprecedented that everybody in the kingdom should literally worship him. And so he erects an image to himself. Let's read about it in the first five verses. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold and whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. To make sense of that, it's 90 feet high, 10 feet wide. So there's this giant statue. How, how high is this, I wonder? 30 feet? 40. So the image of Nebuchadnezzar was twice the, si the, the height of this ceiling and some change. And 10 feet wide. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And it says in verse 2, King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather uh, together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, and the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So we're going to have a great big party surrounding the image, this idolatrous image of a man. Now, so the satraps, administrators, governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, all the who's who's, all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, looking way up there. Let's just draw this analogy, big text. 
Remember Big Tech? You ever just stood there and looked up at Big Techs? How many of you have never done that? Oh, I need to pray for you at the end of the service. I'm going to anoint you come fall to go and stand in front of Big Techs. Anybody in Texas has got to do it at least one time. Not to worship Big Techs, but to experience this giant. So think of that. They're all standing looking up at this idolatrous image made in the image of Nebuchadnezzar, made in the likeness of him. And they stood before the image that he had set up, and then a herald cried aloud. And look what he said, to you it is commanded. Everybody say commanded. So this is, a, this is not an option. This is not for you to decide whether or not you want to do it. It is a decree. It is a command that the peoples, nations, and languages, all of them, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, so music is being mixed in with this idolatry because music is powerful, all right? So here's music being mixed in with it, and he said, you shall fall down when you hear the music. You shall fall down and do what, everybody? Read it with me. Worship the gold image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So what are they being commanded to do? They're being commanded to commit idolatry. They're being commanded to worship something other than Jehovah God. Commanded. This is, an, this is a, uh, and, and look what he says if you don't do it. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately in the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So how many of you can say the stakes are high? If, if you don't bow down, you're going to be burned alive. Now, that's pressure. And so the screw is being turned now. Now this king has gone into total idolatry. He's commanding, and he, it's the greatest kingdom of the world. He's commanding hundreds of thousands of people to bow down to him, to an image of him. And if you are seen not bowing down, your fate is to be thrown into an oven. Now, that's going to separate the men from the boys. Amen? Amen? Now, I try to pull out lessons from this chapter so we can make personal application of this. And here, here's the first lesson I see. Here, the lesson is that all pagan nations, all nations that either depart from God or never were uh, dedicated to God, finally reach the place where they force their citizens to bow down to and worship their idols. It's going to happen. You can mark it down. It's going to reach a place where you must go along with the crowd and every nation, folks, worships something. We were wired to worship. We're hardwired to worship something. And if we don't worship the living God, I guarantee you we're going to worship something. And whatever you choose to worship is going to be the deciding factor in what you become. You are the result and will be the result of what you choose to worship. That's why the Bible says concerning idols, they that make them are like them. So it matters what we worship. Amen? Amen. So the Greeks worship the various mythological gods. You can go back to Greece and read about it. They worship Zeus, Apollo, Athena. I used to really love Hercules and I was all into the Hercules thing as a kid, but that's just a myth. 
He's a myth. Uh, uh, Samson was the real thing. But Zeus, Apollo, Athena, all these Greek mythological gods, uh, they were worshipped in Greece. And, and if you didn't worship them, you were, at very best, you were out of place. You were ostracized. You were really weird if you did not worship these mythological gods. But then when Rome took over Greece, they just took the Greek pantheon of gods and made them into Roman gods. The same gods the Greeks worshipped, the Romans worshipped just under another name. And Rome had its own pantheon. And guess what? That's why many of the first century Christians were persecuted and even martyred because they turned the people away from the worship of these false gods, including the worship of Caesar, to the worship of Jesus Christ. And that's what got them in trouble. They attacked the gods of the culture. Okay? In Acts 19, for instance, we've all read about it. We see an uproar of persecution in Ephesus against Paul and his companions for turning the people away from Diana, who was the goddess of sex, to the worship of Christ. And you remember, Paul and them were almost torn apart uh, in the persecution that followed because they went against the idols. They went against the false gods, and they refused to embrace the gods of the culture. Now, I'm going somewhere with this, and it's going to matter to you and me so stay with, stay with me. This really does matter. Now, if you jump down in time to the 20th century Germany, for instance, the worship of Hitler and utter submission to the Nazis was demanded at the cost of liberty and life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, I'm not going to worship Hitler, and I'm not going to submit to Nazism, and he was martyred. And that's why we know about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Lutheran priest. He said, I'm not going to do it. He had the spirit of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not the spirit of a compromising caver. All right? And now here we are in post-Christian America. How many of you are aware it's not Christian America anymore? Come on. So yes, it is, Jeff. We were founded on Christianity. Hey, our nation has so departed from the Christian faith that if you adhere to the Bible, embrace the Bible, and the values and principles therein, and you love the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're not a compromiser, but you are totally sold out, you tell me how you do out there in a crowded elevator when you say, I love Jesus. You tell me how you're accepted out there. Tell me how you're accepted in our current government. If you're a sold-out believer in Jesus Christ, you're looked at as a weirdo, you're looked at as stupid, you're looked at as uneducated, you're looked at as backward, and really, you're looked at now to be a target of persecution. Amen. Let me give you a for instance. Ten years ago, if you wanted to live a homosexual lifestyle, that was simply your choice. Go for it. Hey, if that's the way you want to live, uh, that's okay. It's not my life. Go live it. But now, it's become increasingly demanded even legislated into law that if non-homosexuals or those who believe it to be a sinful lifestyle don't agree with it, they can be fined, lose their livelihoods, or even jailed. A pastor or religious leader in England and increasingly in America can and are being jailed for hate speech if they speak against the homosexual lifestyle. Have you noticed? Hello, I hope you have. 
because in our own nation, people have lost their jobs, have been fined so heavily for refusing to cater to that lifestyle that they had to sell their jobs or just have them liquidated because they no longer had their careers. In America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, now freedom of speech is being trumped by the so-called rights of the gay community that their lifestyle not be criticized. So the, the, the rights of the gay community to not be criticized is now trumping free speech in England and in America more and more and more. Do you see what's happening and why I'm going after this with, with Daniel? Because Daniel and, and his three buddies, there in a pagan kingdom, were told, bow down and worship this idol. And if you don't, you're going to lose your life. That's what happens in pagan kingdoms. And now look how America has shifted. I started preaching in America. This is really going to date me. But when I was 18 years old. And, and, and so uh, over four decades ago, and I'm going to tell you that it's not the same America I started preaching in. I can't believe America has so changed, so been transformed, has so departed from the principles it was founded on in one generation. In one generation. So that now, uh, we used to go on the streets and preach to anything and everything that moved. We, there was no, I mean, there was, you would be made fun of and, you know, you would be mocked and ridiculed and, and put off, but there were no legal threats. There was no legislation against you doing it. Uh, uh, there, there was no heavy hand literally telling you that, that if you call a particular lifestyle wrong or you preach in the name of Jesus that there is no other way to heaven but through him that you would be legally come against to, to muffle you and shut you down and fine you and jail. We've had people in America be thrown in jail for taking a Bible stand. I can't believe it. I look around me and I can't believe it. I can't, I can't believe what has happened to our country. England is about 10 years ahead of us, maybe five, because it's, it's worse there. But we're qu quickly coming up on them. And so why am I teaching things like Daniel? Because we've got to get the spirit of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in us. Amen. Preemptively. Yes. Amen? Amen? Preemptively. Amen. Now the real message behind all this is in America, for instance, you must bow down to the idol of sexual perversion. And you must bow down to the dictates of political correctness or face the consequences. Whatever the burning fiery oven is, whatever it happens to be, being fined, being jailed, being ostracized, losing your job, whatever the burning fiery oven is, it's a threat that if you stand for God, you're going to pay as a nation continually goes pagan because you must worship the gods they do or pay a price. And we can include in this the God of abortion, amen, the God of secularism, which refuses to acknowledge God. That's secularism. It refuses to acknowledge God. There's university campuses now that you cannot talk about Jesus you cannot bring up your faith. If you do, you're going to be in major trouble in that university. Political correctness rules supreme. That's the God of our universities now. 
And I know what that feels like. I was in college lots of years, and I've had major experiences. When I was in the, should I name the college? Um, a college near here. I was, I majored in radio, TV, film for my bachelor's degree and minored in journalism. And um, I can just tell you real quickly that we were, at the end of the semester, we were in the film class, we were told we were to do our own three-minute film. You do your own three-minute film. So we had our own lighting director, our own audio director, our own cameramen, uh, different people in the class did played those different parts, but it was your job to write the little three-minute script, and you were the talent on camera. So it came time for me. Well, it was around Christmas time, and since it was around Christmas time, I thought it would just be great to try to appeal to the intellectual, what I thought was in their noggins, the people in my class. The intellectual curiosity of college students. Surely, if I can bring something out of the Bible that would appeal to their intellectual curiosity, maybe I can reach them. So since it was almost Christmas, I decided to do it out of Isaiah 9. You will call his name? No, I did Micah 5.2. I'm sorry, Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem, though you are little among the clans of Judah, yet out of you shall he come forth who is to be ruler over Israel, whose goings have been from eternity, from everlasting to everlasting. I thought, wow, there you've got a verse where it shows for sure that where Jesus was going to be born was predicted and that he was an eternal personality. And how amazing that that that, that could come to pass the way it did. Remember, I only had three minutes. So I, I, I thought, I'm, I'm going to have them all asking me questions. How, is that really true? Uh, is that really in the Bible? And so I sat down. I had my own cue cards. And, I, you know, ready, action. And so I start reading my cue cards. And I got cameramen, lighting men. I've got the audio director on a second floor looking down on me. And while I'm talking into the camera, you know, bright lights are on you, so you can't see uh, what's really going on around you because very bright stage lights are on you. But I'm hearing motion around me. I'm hearing movement, and I didn't know what it was. Of course, in my mind, my preacher's mind, I thought, well, maybe even more are coming in to hear this. <laughs> and so I wound it up, you know, three minutes. I, I felt just great about it, and the lights came up, and you know what? Nobody was there. No one was there. The whole class had walked out. My camera people had walked out. My lighting director had walked out. My audio person was the only one that stayed. It was a girl who was a believer. She was the only one left. My teacher walked out. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't believe it. I was stunned. I was crushed. I stood up, and, and this girl that was a Christian came down and said, Jeff, I'm so sorry, but in the middle of your thing, when you started reading the Bible, they just all got up and walked out. <laughs> and, and it just punched me in the gut, and I thought, wow. And I went out in the hall, and there they all were, leaned up against the wall, smoking cigarettes, talking, and wouldn't look at me. And all I did was read Micah 5, 2, and Isaiah 9, 6. That's all I did. You know what I found out? 
When you are in a place where darkness reigns and you read the Word of God, it doesn't matter who you are, the Word is so powerful that people that are in the dark, they run like cockroaches when you turn on a kitchen light. They can't take it. But, oh, that was an experience for me. I remember, I remember that day I, I took a bus to school and I took a bus back home because I was coming from Richardson to this school near here. <laughs> near here, sort of near here. Four-year university, near here. And um, I got on that bus and I was crushed and I was devastated. And you know what? I was embarrassed because I'd never experienced that level of resistance and rejection and ostracism just because I took a stand for God. And, and, and so I'm kind of sulking and I'm saying, wow, did I say something wrong, do something wrong? Was that just a, Lord, did I miss it by, by what I did? And, and the Holy Ghost spoke to me and he said, Jeff, did I not tell you if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you? And if they rejected me, they'll reject you? And then he said, rejoice. The Spirit of God and of glory is resting on you. You know? So there you go. But man, what an experience it was. And so I learned that when you take a stand, and this was, this was way, this was a while back. Now, they'd probably call the police on me. But this, this is what I experienced, that when you're in a pagan environment, and you take a stand for God, there's going to be a reaction, folks, and we should not be shocked by it. Amen. Consider it not strange, the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you are partaking and sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Now, Daniel and his three friends are told in no uncertain terms that if they don't comply, they're going to meet the terrible fate of being thrown into an oven alive. And here's the second lesson we learn, is that once again, the majority is wrong. How many of you know the majority is often wrong? And it's the minority that is often right. But since we're fallen creatures, it's so easy for the majority to get something so wrong, to be totally wrong. So just because the majority are following something doesn't mean they're right. Amen. They may pay for it down the road. Don't follow because the majority is doing it. Follow it if it's true. Follow it if it's biblical. Follow it if it honors God. So it says, at that time when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, uh, in symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, languages, fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But they were wrong. Now here again we see that the godly are in the minority surrounded by almost universal godlessness. If you love Jesus and are walking with him and cleave to the Bible and embrace its truth, its absolute truths, then you're in the minority in this nation right now. And that's okay because I believe with all my heart the majority is dead wrong. They've missed God and they're headed towards the cliff. They really are. Now next, the ugly specter of persecution raises its head via some snitches. Look what happens. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everybody who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. 
And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast in the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. They're, they're reminding him of his decree. And there are certain Jews, they continue, whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. You've honored these men, O king, and they're not honoring you. Shadrach, he na they named them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Now here's our third lesson. Remember this one. Godless people can be counted on to resent nonconformists. Sometimes it's a jealousy factor. They know deep down they're doing wrong and they can't stand the sight of somebody that hasn't sold out like they have. Other times it's just the impulse of the ungodly to hate people walking in light. Some people are going to hate you just because you're in the light. They're going to hate you. They're going to hate you because you're in the light. And you, being in the light, convict them of their sin. And they don't want to be convicted. Jesus said, here's the condemnation that light came into the world and men love darkness more than light, John 4. Now, the Chaldeans that ratted them out were highly educated. They were considered wise men in Babylon, and they were astrologers, not astronomers, scientists, but astrologers, worshipers of the stars, the zodiac kind of people. So these informers were the Babylonian cream of the crop. And they remind Nebuchadnezzar of his decree that all the kingdom must worship his image. And they inform him that these insolent Hebrews are not bowing down. And the king is furious. He summons them. He gives them one more chance to comply. And he just unloads on, on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar, it says in verse 13, in rage and fury gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Here's the king on his throne. And here's these three Hebrew young men standing in front of him. Now look what happened. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now if you are ready at the time, you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you don't worship you're going to be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Now, what does he say next? What does he say next? Who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Well, he's about to find out. He's about to find out. Now, remember with me that just a chapter earlier, this same King Nebuchadnezzar has declared Daniel's God to be the God of the universe after Daniel interprets his dream. This guy's got a short memory. One chapter earlier, oh, the God of Daniel is the God of all gods. I want everybody to honor Daniel and, and bow down and worship the God of Daniel and all this stuff. One chapter later, he's going, who is the God that can deliver you out of my hands? Okay? So he needs to be reminded again and he's about to be. In just one short chapter, he's telling the three Hebrew teenagers, there is no God that can deliver them, and that's the message of our secular culture. There's no God that can deliver you. It's all phony baloney. It's not real. Who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? 
And one of the things we're going to witness in the book of Daniel in the first six chapters is the slow, gradual conversion of Nebuchadnezzar from a pagan, godless king to a believer in Daniel's God. Next week, he's going to lose his mind. I'm serious. Don't miss next week because this, this dude, this guy, who's now twice challenging their God, he's going to lose his marbles all caps Amen. in a way that's unbelievable. Don't miss next week because God's going to have the final say with this man. <laughs> all right? So it just goes to show you when you're being persecuted, God's working on the people that are coming against you. That's right. He is. So, but here in chapter 3, he's already forgotten what he learned in chapter 2. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond to his threats by telling him they don't even need to pray about it. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. This is not anything we need to go think about. If that is the case, you're going to throw us in that oven. Our God, whom we serve, everybody say the next two words with me, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. Now, so far, would you call that a major statement of faith or what? But look what they say next. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, we don't serve your gods. We don't serve secularism. We do not kowtow to abortion. We do not embrace sexual perversion. Amen. We don't serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. And that's it, period. <laughs> Notice they begin by telling the king, our God's able, but then they tack onto it the words, but if not, even then, we will not comply. If he decides to not deliver us from that oven, if we, if we go into that oven and we're incinerated, that's okay. Even, even then, even with that possibility, we will not serve your gods they then knew they knew that god could but they didn't know if he would you ever been there they knew he could god can do anything but they didn't know if he was going to but they took their stand anyway so a fourth lesson from chapter three is the attitude the church has got to have when faced with persecution God is able to deliver me, but he might not. I might be martyred. Did you read about the Catholic priest this week who was beheaded in his church altar in the Middle East? He was beheaded in front of the people by ISIS right there in his altar. Here's my altar. If you can imagine it happening, he was beheaded. So could God have saved him from it? Yes. Did he? No. He might not, even if he doesn't. I'm not going to bow. I'm not going to give in. Jesus said, don't fear him who can kill the body but can't kill the soul. Fear him who can take both body and soul and cast them into hell. Indeed, I say, fear him. You know, we love the first chapter of Hebrews 11. talks about all the miraculous del uh, deliverances and miracles on behalf of God's saints. 
But we don't talk much about the second half of Hebrews, where they were persecuted, sawn in half. That's Isaiah. Tortured, mocked, imprisoned. We don't like talking about them. We like the first half of the chapter of faith. But the second half is devoted to those for whom God did not come through and deliver them from it. And they paid a price, and they were martyred. But both, and it says, all these died in faith, not having received the promises, God having prepared some better thing for us, that without them, without us, they could not be made perfect. So there was those who were delivered and those who were not, but they all died in faith. I said they all died in faith. So faith doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be taken out of the trial. You may be taken through the trial. Amen. Amen. Next, the king became enraged, or the oven turned up seven times hotter, had them tied up, and they were cast into the oven. Now, remember, these three Hebrew teens have been the king's personal choice, along with Daniel, to be his servants. They were the cream of the crop, the best of the best of the Hebrew captives, and now he's turned on them. And that brings me to another lesson. Don't be surprised if the world that seems to embrace you one day turns on you. This is exactly what they did with Jesus. The very crowd that had shouted his hosannas, many of whom he had healed and delivered and helped. Shouting his hosannas on the first Palm Sunday, they were in the crowd yelling, crucify him days later. Uh, The world's a fickle world. Don't ever lean on flesh for your strength. Lean on God. Lean on God. I say lean on God. Don't ever put all your confidence in flesh. The world is always a turncoat lover regarding the godly. Now next, you know the rest of the story. God did decide to deliver them in a stunningly miraculous way. But notice, he didn't deliver them from the oven. He delivered them in the oven. Catch that. Oh, we love it when he keeps us from it. But my experience has been more times than not, he walks me through the valley, doesn't take me out of the valley. He walks me through the valley. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. That's where I learn. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. He delivered them in the oven. Look what verse 24 says. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He thought they were ashes by now. And can you imagine this old pagan king looking in there? (laughs) He rose in haste and he spoke saying to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they all went, true, O king, true, O king. They weren't seeing yet what he did. Yeah, yeah, that's what we cast in there, king. Then he says, look, and they all began to head towards the mouth of that oven. I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth one is like the Son of God. Now, what we have here is called a Christophany. A Christophany is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament or an appearance of Jesus following his resurrection. 
Jesus appeared many times in the Old Testament. What did Paul say? The rock that followed them through the wilderness was Christ. When you see the angel, capital A in the Old Testament, more times than not, it's Christ manifested before he was ever born a human being. A Christophany. And so you've got Jesus in the oven with them. He didn't keep them from it, but he delivered them in it by a manifestation of his own power and own presence in the oven. You in an oven tonight? He's there with you. I want you to say with me, if I'm in an oven, he's in there with me. And something good is happening in that oven. You know what's happening? The ropes that bound you when you went in are being burned off right now. The only thing that got touched by the fire is what bound them. Everything else, not a hair on their head was singed, but the ropes that bound them were burned off. You say, Jeff, do you really believe this? Oh, of course I believe this. God can do anything. And so in the ovens of life, he gets in there with us. And there are some things that need to be burned off. And you'll notice that when you come out on the other side of the burning, fiery oven experiences, there's some things that used to hold you that don't anymore. There's a stronger anointing. There's a stronger boldness. There's a stronger presence. There's a stronger walk. There's a stronger faith. Things that bound you are burned off. It doesn't feel good. It's not something you would pick. But you sure do like the result. He makes all things work together for the good of those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. Even a pagan king recognized that the fourth man in the fire was a supernatural being, saying he looked like literally, the Hebrew reads this, a son of the gods. What he noticed was this fourth man looked supernatural. He wasn't normal. Amen. Nebuchadnezzar goes to the mouth of the oven and calls them out. He says, come out of there. <laughs> Sorry, I threw you in. <laughs> just, like, just like when the king went and told Daniel, hey, Daniel, are you still there in the lion's den? I'm here, O king, and God sent his angels, and they shut the lion's mouths. So these three, if you can imagine, came walking out of this oven, like Lazarus came walking out of the tomb, like Daniel came out of the lion's den. The fourth man didn't come out. He had disappeared. Mission accomplished. Nebuchadnezzar and all the governors, administrators, counselors of Babylon noticed these men on whose bodies the fire, say it with me, had no power. The hair of their head was not, what did Jesus say? Not one hair of your head will perish. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected. And the smell of fire, you couldn't even tell they'd been in a fire. They didn't even smell like it. They weren't delivered from the trial of the oven but they were delivered from being destroyed by the oven. I'm going to read that again because some of you need to hear it. They weren't delivered from the trial of the oven. They went through the trial, but they were delivered from being destroyed by the trial. The fire had no power over them. Their hair wasn't singed. They didn't smell like they'd been in there. Didn't Paul through his many trials, testify the same thing. This is one of my favorite verses. Read it with me. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We're perplexed, 
but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed by the trial. Okay? Wasn't it worth coming to church on Wednesday night? This is good stuff. Now, in light of this miracle, Nebuchadnezzar makes an almost identical decree. He said, what was that I said in chapter 2? I'm going to say it again here in chapter 3. And look what he said. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel, notice capital A, that's a Christophany, and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their what? You remember Romans 12, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holding acceptable to God? And yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own God. You know, here comes his decree again. Therefore, I make it a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be. Boy, this king had a terrible imagination, didn't he? If he's not burning you alive, he's cutting you in pieces. Shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap. Now read the last part with me. Because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Give the Lord a hand of praise tonight, can you? Well, here comes promotion again. They went from zero to hero. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Anytime you stand for the Lord, there's going to be a fiery moment, a fiery season. But if you stay true, promotion will follow. Here's the final lesson. When you take a stand for Christ, things may get very hot. He may not deliver you from the trial, but he will deliver you in the trial and work it out for his glory and your good. Now, this King Nebuchadnezzar, stand up with me, would you? We're, we're done for the night. This King Nebuchadnezzar, do you see how four young men in a pagan kingdom are, are totally impacting the entire kingdom because they refuse to compromise. And we're going to see next week, like I said, that God is finally going to move on this King Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to lose his mind, and he's going to learn a crucial lesson that, w- that really finally brought him to faith in the true and living God, a lesson that we all need to know, and we're going to learn it next week. Father, thank you for this incredible chapter and this story of these three Hebrew children who refused to bow, bend, break, or back down when faced with persecution. Lord, thank you for the lesson of not being assimilated, not being indoctrinated, but walking with their God as a tiny minority that affected the majority with their faith. Help, Lord, Turning Point to be such a church. Can we lift our hands to the Lord? How many of you can say, I'd love to make a difference like they did? Let's pray that prayer. Lord, in this pagan culture, departing from you, we present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Lord, help us to see 
this nation impacted the majority impacted by a minority. Now, pray and just say, Lord, use me. Use me in these last days. I pray in Jesus' name.